listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. We uncover the Buddha within, the Christ consciousness within, the awakening. We embody that, <clears throat> excuse me, the minute we no longer cling to an ideal. This gets really hard. This, this part of the practice can get really, really tricky because people will immediately say, oh, wait, what do you mean? I've predicated an entire life on, on ideals. I, I've, I've, Buddhism or a stillness practice is an ideal. You know, what, what do you mean? <clears throat> and quite simply, the cool kind of self-correcting aspect of this teaching is it says, do not cling. And do not cling even to the not clinging. Okay? <laughs> In other words, you have an idea of the way things should be, and they're not. Let go of that, because that's your just ideal of the way you think things should be. Letting go, that doesn't mean pushing it away. Doesn't mean saying nothing matters. Everything matters. Kinda. You might have a, a sense of of what is right and what is wrong. And I invite you to have that sense. But I would also invite you to loosen loosen up around that. That sense of what is right and what is wrong. You might have a very, very clear sense of who you think you are. And as we've discussed time and time again, who you think you are is precisely partial. Who you think you are is only your mind's sense of what your infinity represents. So the real work then is actually creating, as I've said before, space around all this stuff. This is the way it should be, but it's not, and you, you cling to that. This is the way it should be. Well, it is not, and so stop clinging to it, and then engage in what is. And from that place of engagement, it's kind of like a... Uh, a ferociously tender engagement in life. All sorts of really neat things can happen. When you have a sense of what should be or what is, pretty much you've narrowed your options down to what should happen. 
And what this does is this keeps, keeps the infinite out, even though it's knocking on your door. So opening. Opening is our work. There's this great line that, uh, that Carl Jung has that I've, it's always kind of seems so beautiful to me. Every form of addiction, in this case, clinging. Addiction is, is really, if you think about it, addiction is, is clinging to anything but here. Right? Escape, escape, escape. Every form of addiction is bad, he says, no matter whether the narcotic be alcohol, morphine, or idealism. And so we break down this addiction to <clears throat> our idea of who we are. We break down this, this, this addiction, <laughs> an addiction. An addiction is actually a clinging to oneself, I think. It's a new term. <laughs> I have an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we call that delusion. Thank you. <laughs> Where the hell was I? <laughs> I was addictioned. Yes. <laughs> well, anyway. <laughs> the, the point, the point that... Uh, Uncle Carl was trying to make here, I think, is, is just beautiful. And that is that uh, we cling to things to generate stability in the face of the inherent chaos of what is actually going on. What happens if you can get really comfortable with what is actually going on? Then we're no longer addicted to situations. We're no longer addicted to people. We're no longer addicted to relationships. We're no longer addicted to an ideology. We're no longer addicted to addiction. We're also no longer addicted to non-addiction. So let's be open. Just for 30 minutes, and then you can go back to your addictions if you want. You're allowed. So there's this little story in relationship to craving. I had a teacher who was very, very clear on it. I thought she, she was fantastic. Um, she said, moving toward what you like or moving away from what you dislike are the same move. This particular priest had a way about her that put everyone at ease. I loved her for this. In the face of so much seriousness around the Zen community, she offered smiles that could light up the night. Comfort and discomfort are temporary states, she would always say. They, like everything else, will fade away. So get right in there with all of it, as best you can, again and again, with total relaxation. Do this continually, and know that in that still space that notices your state, the potential for deep realization will offer itself to each of us. While I like the sound of her words, I always felt like telling her that sometimes things hurt and you want to avoid them. But I kept quiet and followed her advice to see if just sucking it up would lead to what I hoped would be an actual experience of what she described. 
In time I saw that she and all those before her who had said the same thing were right, honestly recognizing that both bliss and discomfort are temporary states frees us from fearing the loss of anything. Get over it, she'd say with a laugh. Whatever it might be, get over it and get real. Don't deny it, just let it go, again and again. You can't keep anything anyway. Again, whatever it is will eventually be gone. So take responsibility for the way you relate to this fact, process it, deal with it, and then when you're ready, let the whole thing go. Nothing lasts. This is one of the great laws of the universe, one of the great truths of the Buddha's teaching. In trying to find a creative way to break this law, we realize that the universe always wins, always. Fighting this law is the reason why, she said, we suffer. I was really lucky because I had this ass kicker dressed up in these beautiful robes and this bald head and so forth. And she had a way of very, very gently calling a spade a spade. And in my case, that spade was always, always looking for pleasure. And that's craving. Very simple way of defining craving. It's the ego wanting to enrich our lives continually with pleasure, whatever that pleasure might be. You could also look at it in a slightly uh, more nuanced way, and that is craving is the ego's way of constantly trying to get out of pain. Get out of painful situations. Do whatever you can to get out of a painful situation. Instead of facing our pleasure and becoming intimate, truly intimate with our pleasure, or instead of facing our pain, we tend to bolt, run from it, okay, if it's painful, or dive into it if it generates pleasure. This isn't um, necessarily unnatural, but it's exactly what is not awakening. Awakening is not natural in the day-to-day -day sense. To confuse you a little more, it's the ultimate natural state, but it's not natural to be able to meet up with that with all of the stuff we have veiling ego from our sight, veiling awakening from our sight. Ego is so skillful and so subtle at making sure that the drapes are pulled shut so that we cannot see that light. And one of the things that this does, craving is so often predicated on not having enough, not being enough. And if we don't feel like we are enough as we are, what we will tend to do is we will tend to crave things that will in some way, shape, or form cover that up. So we fill ourselves with kind of this doubt. And when we are filled with doubt, and we, and we cling to it, we cling to our doubt, and this is ego's way of, of, of making sure it can manage the experience of enlightenment. When we cling to our doubt, Fen Yang, who was a, a Chinese, Chinese uh, master, said, when you are deluded and full of doubt, 
Even a thousand books of scripture are not enough. When you have realized understanding, even one word is too much. So what we tend to do when we feel like we're not enough, and this shows up especially in spiritual communities, is oh, I'm, I'm not getting this. Something's missing. I'm not doing something right. That's quite natural because ego really, the dialogue that ego really wants to have with you is, uh, I'm not really doing this right. I'll never get it in this lifetime anyway, so um, let's go watch TV. Why, why in the world should I meditate? It's, it hurts. <laughs> or I have to face things I just don't want to face. Okay. That's all fine. You don't have to. <laughs> However, something pulls us. It's the great, great mystery. The universe wants to evolve through us. And that's the great, seemingly at least, the great mystery. And it's so dang impressive when we see that despite all of the things that we want to throw in our own way to keep us from sitting still or keep us from actually, you know, embodying this teaching as best we can, it still tugs at us. And kind of giving ourselves over to that is, is not craving as long as the giving ourselves over to that pull of the universe doesn't turn into, now I got it, okay? Or let me try to catch it. Do you understand the subtle difference there? When we open and give ourselves over, we're doing the opposite of craving. I mentioned at the very beginning of our sitting, right before I rang the bell, forgive. Forgiveness is the ultimate in generosity. And by definition, the ultimate in generosity is the opposite of craving, of feeling like we're coming at the world from a position of lack. You hearing me? So if, if we're coming at our lives from a place of lack, we're not enough, and we're craving stuff to fill in, to patch up the holes And we begin to forgive that sense. What we're doing is we're taking this massive shortcut on the path. And that massive shortcut goes something like this. I see what is. I'm no longer going to, going to either resist it or go after it. I'm going to forgive it. And then in that moment, in that moment, abundance arises. Forgiveness comes from a deep well of abundance. And it's the kind of forgiveness I'm talking about is not the kind of forgiveness that is, I forgive you for your trespasses against me. Okay? Wholly different. That is a totally different kind of forgiveness because it's an egoic negotiation. You were nice to me, therefore I forgive you. There's a lot of I there. I addiction, I addiction. There's a lot of I addiction there. Okay. okay? <coughs> On the other hand, when forgiveness quite literally is something that 
we just open to truth, the truth of what we are, the truth of the situation, and we don't flinch in the face of all of it, something really huge kind of unfolds. And this is usually really unfamiliar. This is an unfamiliar space for most of us to forgive at a truly radical level, at a root causal level, and there's just this openness. And there's no longer a me and no longer a you, there's just is this forgiveness. The ego is no longer doing its dance of negotiate, get this to help with this, to help with this, I'm lacking here, so get this, this, oh, if I get another degree, I'll be okay, and then if I get... I like Volvos, you know, whatever. There's this uh, great, great scene in uh, the film Fight Club, David Fincher film. It pretty much is about, it's, it's, it's laced with so much, so much uh, zen. If you, ever, if you ever get a chance, it's, it's, I think, quite a good film. You have to be able to stomach some uh, fairly graphic scenes and so forth, but it's just, it's really well done. And Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote the book, has this... Well, he just establishes this, this beautiful relationship within an individual. And there's this, there's this scene in the film where Edward Norton is talking about how he, you know, he had a wardrobe that was getting pretty respectable. And he almost had the whole furniture thing in his condo. He almost had it all down. He almost had, you know, it was decorated just the way he wanted. And, you know, all the stuff was, was almost there. And then Brad Pitt's character says, you know what, that's polishing the brass on the Titanic. What, do you, what, do you, what good does that do? Now, fictional characters aside, I'm not saying we're polishing the brass on the Titanic, except that we're all going to die. And it makes sense to make sure that knowing that and not knowing when it's going to happen that we play for keeps. Okay? So I really agree with that. I also agree with the fact that filling our lives with things to patch up superficial senses of lack, egoic tendencies to find flaw and fault, whenever we're trying to patch that stuff up with things or with ideas, we tend to run aground. We tend to hit icebergs, so to speak. And as such, our craving is always going to block. Always. It's always going to block the infinite from meeting itself through us in this very moment. So, if we can begin to observe very carefully what is going on as it is going on fearlessly, if we can recognize what we crave, if we can recognize our wants and see through them, begin to see our needs as opposed to our wants, and being able to gauge those with, a, with a, a degree of honesty. 
at that moment, uh, we no longer have to worry about ego jumping in and turning boundless love into uh, clinging, jealousy, and fear. We no longer have to worry about um, ego jumping into the pure impulse of compassion and turning it into pity. I feel sorry for that person. We don't have to worry about that. Compassion just begins to fill our experience. We begin to act from that place. We no longer have to worry about joy for another person's success turning into comparison and scorekeeping. We don't have to live, in other words, in a place of separation, but we can rather live in and from a place of incredible connection. We're no longer caught. And I, I probably use that verb too much, but we really are free. Nothing is pulling us. We're able to choose. We're no longer addicted, nor are we addicted. We just live freely, fully. We're totally engaged. So study your craving. Look at your craving deeply. Look at its source as best you can. Begin to witness the tendency within you to go after something and kind of grab onto it. In the same way, as my teacher mentioned, look at what you avoid. Know that every situation is temporary. Every situation is temporary. And let that recognition inspire a fearlessness in you. Yes, Kim. <laughs> I had two and a half questions. Two and a half? <laughs> Can we start with the half first? No. Okay. Um, if, if a person who had met, been meditating for 10,000 hours mm -hmm. was sitting and um, they were deep in meditation um, and, they, and their nose itched, um, would they notice the itch or would they be so deep in meditation that they, um, they, they wouldn't even, it would be just, it wouldn't even um, ruffle the water? Yeah, it depends on how itchy. <laughs> it is. Well, if it was just like a, a normal itch, like a. <laughs> so, like, so you have an, so, some really, really great meditator, yeah. the 10,000 hour plus variety. Right, <laughs> She's sitting there, she has an itch on her nose. Right. Does she itch it? No, that wasn't the question. Oh, does it? Does she notice it? Does she notice it? I hope so. <laughs> Otherwise, she's avoiding what's really going on. Right? right. So, so essentially, an experienced meditator doesn't go away. They don't go away. 
an experienced meditator is all there. So the itch on her nose, the fact that her son just said something really cruel to her that, you know, yesterday or, or whatever, whatever it might be, whatever situation might be, she's going to meet that and won't move. But isn't the experienced meditator supposed to be silent? Isn't, isn't that, that person in a total What's, what's noisy about an itch? Well, then the itch causes the meditator to start thinking about the itch. Ah, you didn't say that. Okay. Now, the itch is just an itch. Right. The, the, uh, the, the deeply uh, practiced meditator doesn't put a lot of baggage onto an itch. Doesn't, like, suddenly go, oh, my God, that itch is so bad. <laughs> this is excruciating. What am I going to do? No. In fact, what it becomes, because <laughs> that's what an experienced meditator sounds like. <laughs> I'm like, God. Uh -huh. the, 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 itch, the itch will be there without a story. It's just an itch, just like the pain. Just like the emotional, uh, uh, you know, upwelling that occurs when when loss comes up that may have happened 20, 30 years ago. Okay. So uh, 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 there's, a, there's a steadiness that comes with the ability to meet that stuff. It doesn't put it all away. It may or may not show up. Okay. Usually, the longer you do this, the less stuff shows up that really demands attention. I can only say that from experience. You know? that it's, it's, it's very rare, although it does happen, that stuff comes up that, oh my goodness, wow. Didn't expect that at all. Cool. You know? Where's the half question? Because now I'm really, I'm totally um, curious about the half question. It's not related to the other question. Okay. Um, so that's why it's a half? <laughs> well, so, um, who's doing the forgiving? There you go. That's actually 10 questions. Who is it that forgives? Get back to me on that one. Okay, and then Go. the other question. Yeah. Um, in listening to your talk, um, it's easier for me to understand what you're saying if I substitute the word acceptance instead of forgive. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they're interchangeable? No. Why? Because forgiveness, ac acceptance means that there is a deep tolerance for what is. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness is opening an offering to what is. Offering the totality of this moment. So one is offering, it's, it's, we can look at it as a scale or a degree. And if your ego feels better using acceptance, let it. Okay? But forgiveness you can accept uh, when somebody does something to you, but that's different than when you forgive them. One opens a little more. One's a little less contracted. I just think of the same thing because I think if you accept something deeply, you don't want to change it. You're not trying to change it, grasp it, or you're not avoiding it. It's just you're accepting it as it is. Are you loving it? And 
That well, um, yeah. Okay. And then uh, I think your ego should keep doing that dance. But I don't. But forgiving to me seems like there's an ego that's judged something, and um, and so it's an it's an ego more of an, e an ego verb. Uh, forgiveness is an ego verb, right? And that's why I said we need to be really careful with it. So if it is an ego verb, then acceptance is going to work better for your ego. Okay. okay. If forgiveness is real forgiveness, if it's deep forgiveness, there's nothing there. Which to me is acceptance. Great. Okay. Yeah. So, but by all means. Um, uh, Let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between deep acceptance and shallow acceptance? Well, maybe I would say that shallow acceptance is more ego-driven. Would you say... There's, sh a, there's a reason behind it. Maybe there's a motive. Maybe there's something I want. So. Right, and so total acceptance, okay? Total acceptance, as long as it involves no self no boundary. Unconditional. Un not just unconditional, like, in other words, as long as the boundary of selfhood, the, <coughs> the I addiction, mm -hmm. as long as it's gone, <coughs> then I think we're talking about something that's very synonymous. Deep, like, deep acceptance. Mm -hmm. It's just that forgiveness implies, it implies an offering. Acceptance is a form of tolerance. Is the offering um, being in the present and completely open? It is like like full attention. Mm -hmm. um, is that like an offering? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you don't. You're not allowed to ask any more questions for the next month. <laughs> Please do. Thank you. Seriously. Thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. Pity involves a me that feels pity for another. Okay? So it implies the separation between a self and another person. Right? And so I feel sorry for them. Compassion, on the other hand, loses that boundary. Okay? So compassion is just the sense that that person is me. That I... It's okay. No. No? No. If you feel compassionate for them, instead of sympathy, you feel empathy. That would be the best way to describe it, probably. You know how sympathy, there's kind of, oh, it's, that sucks for them. But empathy, it's, ah. You can, you can, actually, you can actually feel their feeling. It becomes intersubjective as opposed to subject versus object. And in the same way, we look at compassion being this just, it's love without any attachment. Okay? It's the activity of wisdom. Deep, deep wisdom. The wisdom that shows there is no, nothing other than this one unified existence. The only activity that can come from that place is 
total compassion. Now, when I feel a little separate from that, I feel like I'm in here and everything else is out there, it's really easy for me to feel sorry for them. Does that kind of make sense? It's, it's difficult to understand. I, I like when you use the word empathy. That helps me more. Okay. Total connection. If you feel totally connected, really connected, yeah. yeah. Thanks for the question. Yes? I'm sorry, would love work? For what? Another adjective. For, uh, I'm for sorry. What she was saying. Uh, uh, oh, compassion. compassion. As long as the love, as long as love doesn't have any hate mixed in with it. You ever experienced that? Love hate? I think so. Yeah? That love hate thing? That's not love. That's ego. That's an but egoic I think, negotiation. I think it's like a, a universal love. Sure. Yeah, universal, universal love. I think that's fine. It's just, I, when, the minute we start talking about universal love, the, it's like one of those phrases where there seems like there's a lot of baggage with it. Mm. I don't, it might work. It might work. But um, try it on. <laughs> See if it fits. Yes? Michael, listening to her question mm -hmm. and talking about empathy, for example, when you have a close friend or someone that you really care about that's truly suffering, mm -hmm. and you, from an empathetic standpoint, have that same mm -hmm. suffering mm -hmm. at all. What is the difference between empathy and compassion? Compassion is the activity. Compassionate activity is spawned, is is brought about by the sense that we're totally connected. Okay. So, so if if you are interacting with someone who is, who is right. truly suffering and, and you are feeling perhaps the same pain, mm -hmm. you are having the act action, the activity of having compassion? It depends, it depends what you do. Compassion comes from, it's, it's a, um, the way I'm using the term here at least, it's a doing. It's an, it's an embodied expression, okay, of that connection. So first, the connection occurs, all right? The connection occurs, and it may tenderize us a bit, the activity that comes from that tenderized heart and mind, that soft heart and mind, is compassion. Okay? And oftentimes, the most compassionate thing we can do when someone is in that space, and we are actually able to allow that in and out. Okay? The minute we can allow that in and out, the most powerful, most compassionate thing we can do is to just listen. Mm-hmm. Listen and be, as opposed to talk and do, to try to fix it. Ah, oh, cheer up. You know, it's like, shut up, you know. It's always, yeah, okay. Yeah, David. Um, you're, you were talking about uh, um, clinging to things and to thoughts. Is clinging to activities 
the same, is it one or the other, or is it something, a third thing that, that we cling to? Well, it, you're touching on something that's really huge, so everybody has, to, everybody has to listen real carefully here. Any arising in mind is a thing. So any idea, any physical object, in other words, mental object, belief, anything that arises in mind, we would classify as a thing. Okay? And so we can then become addicted to whatever that might be. Any object of mind is a thing. So your activity, you know, I happen to really enjoy swimming, you know, am I addicted to it? Well, of course not, <laughs> because it's hard, it's hard to be. It's, it, that's, just, that's just one example. But could you be addicted to any other activity? Could I? Sure, sure. Developing a space around the activity, around the ideology, around the person, around the relationship, allows us to actually function a little bit more freely in the heart of all of those things. Okay, so the reason I ask yeah. is that um, activities, um, there's people who are wanting to include you in their activities. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be um, something that I often want to avoid. You don't want to be caught by somebody else's yeah, I don't want, maybe I don't want to participate in somebody else's idea of what we should be doing. Right. That's great. So can you, can you honestly articulate that in the moment? It's a great practice. Because then what you're doing is you're actually, and, and you can do that skillfully so you don't hurt anybody's feelings, but you also, you don't get pulled in a direction that doesn't correspond to your heart's deepest longing. Now you can flip that in the other direction, and you can become a total jerkosaurus and just be somebody who only wants to do what they want to do, right? There's balance there, but it's real easy to, it's real, it's really, I should say, it's very important to be able to meet that, what somebody else thinks I should do, and I don't feel like I should do that, being able to have that conversation frees us. And it might not be easy for somebody else to hear. It might not even be easy for us to say. But it is actually declaring, declaring truth. And that's, as much as anything, what this work is about. It's about living close to truth. Not just yours, but the truth beyond name and form. And if, you start, if there's huge resistance in you, looking at that carefully will always lead you to that spacious truth beyond name and form. Responding from that place is a response of compassion. Thanks so much for coming tonight. Mm -hmm.